Welcome to Reaper's Digest with Blake and Duke. This Hello, is the podcast. <laughs> what? I said this is the podcast where we take our prodigious <laughs> knowledge of science fiction, horror, fantasy, and other genre literatures and actually put it to some sort of use. Yes, indeed. With one of my favorite stories today, or actually favorite movies today, so. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about the novel today, and then yeah. in the next two weeks, we'll be talking about the movie. That's indeed. We're talking Salem's Lot by Stephen King. Yes. So, and a uh, lot to cover in this podcast. Uh, oh, this is going to be our first two-parter. Our first two-parter. And the first time is always the sweetest. That's so, right. <laughs> yeah. uh, well. I'm Blake Ray. I am the lead singer or one of the lead singers of the band Blood Oaks and the co-founder of Pulp Factory Easy. I am Duke Ralston. I'm with, uh, I have a TV show called Tennessee Macabre with some friends of mine. We host B-Horror movies and we're available on Otherworlds TV, uh, ITV Chattanooga and ECN TV on, available on streams on the internet. You definitely need to check it out if you haven't yet. Yes, please do. Yeah. Working on a radio station, internet radio station as well. well there were like five minutes in the day that I had that I didn't have anything to do, so I had to do something to fill it. Well, yeah, you can't have any downtime. That's no. when the thinking starts. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, what are you doing? What are you drinking today, dude? I am I'm glad you asked me that. This is uh, Common John. Brewing Company, located in Manchester, Tennessee. I met these guys. I am drinking, before I go there, I'm drinking Heathen Child, which is, uh, it is a Pilsner. It's a Vienna, I'm sorry, it's Vienna Lager. I met these guys about two years ago. South Pittsburgh had its first brew fest two years ago. And they came over, and at the time, they were just a brewing club. And... They have turned it into a microbrewery in Manchester. And they brew the best beer I've ever had in my life. Really? Yeah. I went over and visited them oh, about two or three weeks ago and had a flight of all their beers. And, um, you know, you go into a lot of microbreweries and the beer's good or great. And then the food isn't all that good. The food here is excellent which was uh, shocking. It's hot dogs and it's onion rings and it's pizzas, but it's all very good, done very well. And the beer is just phenomenal. And this is my favorite. I had uh, about uh, two, four packs, two, you know, eight pints. And I was going to save this to last, but it's my favorite and it didn't make it. There so you go. Live with that. <laughs> what are you drinking? I am drinking... Sweetwater Hazy IPA. Yes. 
Good stuff. Good stuff. Sweetwater's from, you know, Atlanta, which is where I live, yep. or outside. Founded mm-hmm. mm-hmm. in 97. Uh, uh-huh. One thing I really love about Sweetwater, other than the beer, I love the beer. Uh-huh. They tend to be very heavy on the hazy, double-hopped IPAs. Yes, they this do. Juicy. Ooh. It's good, though. Wow, it's good. Um, have, you ever, have you ever tried their blueberry? Uh, they make a summer, like I think it's a lager. It's a blueberry lager. I've had it. Yeah, I love the stuff. It's like evil lemonade. Yeah. <laughs> It'll light you up, too. Yes, it will. Um, now, they partner with the Chattahoochee River Keepers. Oh, I did not realize and, that. Yeah, they uh, part of their proceeds go to helping keep the Chattahoochee River clean. Okay. They also throw one hell of a concert every year in Atlanta, 420 Fest. Yep, I know I know they do that. Um, one of the co-founders uh, has a house up on the mountain behind me, and mm-hmm. so I see him every once. He doesn't live here all the time, but he it's sort of like a vacation house, I guess. And so mm-hmm. I know him. I see him every once in a while. And I, I've talked to him a lot about that concert series. It's a really cool concert series. Yeah, I saw Primus there a few years back, mm-hmm. and I might have been imbibing substances other than beer, but <laughs> maybe <laughs> it was a great show. I yes. giggled a lot. <laughs> now, I'm a big man to be giggling, but yes, <laughs> me too. But I've been there. Mm-hmm. So, all right, we're talking Salem's Lot, which we've said great. Great novel. Yes. Right. Fantastic novel. It was published in 75, mm-hmm. nominated for the World Fantasy Award in 76, mm-hmm. and the Locus Award for the all-time best fantasy novel in 87. Okay. The King has said in multiple interviews that this is his favorite of his own books. I've got to agree with the man. This is my favorite of his books. I'm a little partial to the first one I ever read mm-hmm. because it was the first one, mm-hmm. you know, Firestarter, which is a great book. Oh, yeah, that is a good book. Yeah. Yeah. And uh turned into a pretty successful movie. Yeah. But going back and reading this, this has so much to, uh, to say. Yes. There's a lot of depth in here. Yeah. Which you don't always get in horror. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Um, I think that's what separates King from some of his imitators, is he's got something to say. Yes. yes. You can absolutely teach someone to write, but you can't teach them to have a message. No, and this book has, there's a lot of embedded messages. And um, one of the things, and I was, uh, I thought about this last night and I I'd laid down and gone to sleep or laid down to go to sleep. And of course I, so of course I'm thinking about Salem's lot and Stephen King mm-hmm. and I got to think, and you know, my question is, are the vampires evil coming to this town and preying upon the innocent or are the vampires feeling an ecological niche and taking out damaged goods? Well, you know, one of the repeated images you get is the fire. Yes. Purification. Yeah, purification. And Mm -hmm. that 
good fires prevent bad fires. Yes. You know? So we'll have to get into that a little bit more in just a minute. Yeah. And you want to go through a quick biography of King? Yeah, let's do that. because There was a lot of stuff. I, I don't know a lot about King. And, you know, you, you research it. you got a lot of great stuff in here. So let's, let's hear it. Yeah. So he was born September 21st, 1947 in Portland, Maine. Gradu- graduated University of Maine. And later worked as a teacher while establishing himself as a writer. Uh, this is really important. King was a writing teacher when he started uh, publishing. Right. And he uh, was writing under a pseudonym when he wrote horror mm-hmm. because he didn't think that the university system would look favorably on a horror writer. I can understand that. Mm. <laughs> Especially in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, he published under a few names. Richard Bachman was one he used later. Mm-hmm. Um, he is one of the most successful living authors. Period. Yes. I, um, I, I would almost, well, J.K. Rowling might be more successful, but I would argue that Stephen King has been more successful for longer with very many more novels to his credit than J.K. Rowling has. J.K. Rowling tapped into a market that yes. I haven't been tapped into before, like yeah. that. You know, well, mm-hmm. not never before but not in a long time not you know? not to the degree that she tapped it yeah she yeah. got that young adult and she knew how to grow with them and then yeah. uh you know later she becomes kind of kind of a jerk honestly yeah. you she know? was a one trick pony yeah she really was yeah. you know because have you read any of her other stuff the the uh <laughs> no yeah, it doesn't. There's nothing that entices me to read it, and I mean, I, I loved Harry Potter. I loved that series, uh, but I haven't seen anything else to come that comes from J.K. Rowling that even is remotely interesting. Yeah. So King, uh, his parents split up when he was young, mm-hmm. and him and his brother. Sort of lived in Indiana and Connecticut for several years. He moved back to Maine with his mother and his brother, where he graduated high school in 1966. Keep Mm -hmm. that in mind. 1966 is important because King's villains tend to be high school bullies. Yes. From a certain era, you know? Yes. So he went to the University of Maine. Wrote for the school newspaper, was in the school government. Uh, he published his first short story. And then he graduated with a degree in English in 1970. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took a job in a laundry, continued to write. He was an English teacher mm-hmm. at Hapton Academy. And that was the year he mar- married another writer, Tabitha Spruce, who was successful in their own right. Mm-hmm. In 73, he sells his first novel, Carrie. Yeah. So, 75 is Salem's Lot. 77, The Shining. 80, Firestarter. 
Cujo, it in '86. I mean, talking hit on hit after hit after hit. Yes, iconic hits. Yeah, and then when people said that he could not that these books were only getting published, they were only popular because of his name. Mm-hmm. He started publishing books as Richard Bachman without telling anybody. Right. Uh, famously, he wrote The Running Man, which was adapted into a pretty fun uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Oh, yeah. 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 So he's had tons and tons of his works adapted. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Lots of his short stories have been adapted. I most of his work has been adapted. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've got what's your favorite movie adaptation of King? Other than Salem's Lot, we're gonna bar that Other one. Than Salem's Lot. Okay. Um, uh, I like Christine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'd have to say The Shining, although I like it too. So it's hard to say, but I, I would have to say The Shining would be would be where I'd come down on that. Uh, the Kubrick Shining. Yes. You know they yes. made. Uh, did you ever see the TV miniseries? I did, and oh, and the TV the TV one followed the book much better than uh, the Kubrick one. Oh yeah, but you you can't top Jack Nicholson. No. You can't. No. I mean that that, and even though even though the movie departs significantly from the novel, um, that movie still. I mean that the, the music. Oh. I can see that Volkswagen driving up through the mountain pass, and it just it sends chill bumps up and down my spine right now. Yeah. My first band was a horror punk band, and uh, we used to use yeah. that sound clip. Oh. We saw it oh. all on the TV. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, we used to use that to introduce ourselves uh, live. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's one of those pieces of music that everybody knows. Oh yeah, yeah. So without putting too fine a point on it, King had. Uh, oh, by the way, my favorite uh, King movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pet Cemetery. Oh yeah, that's a good one. The original yeah. one. Yeah, you know? absolutely, so good. But yeah. uh, or Silver Bullet. That's a good one too. You know, I didn't even think about that. I do like Silver Bullet, and um, I think it's it's a very you you know the werewolf story. There's a lot of people that tell it, and it always ends up being the same, but the silver bullet is a, is different. And I like that. It's a different, it's a different twist on a, on a very traditional monster story as is Salem's lot. Um, I think that's it, what he does so well. Yeah. That pulls people in is he, uh, he takes your childhood fears and he makes them new again. Yes. You know, so, Silver Bullet's a great movie, uh, if you haven't seen it. It's based on the King short story, Cycle of the Werewolf. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a particular love-hate relationship with werewolf movies myself. 
<laughs> okay. Tell us about that. I think werewolves are about the coolest monster ever. Mm-hmm. But I think werewolf movies are often terrible. Yes. Because I think they miss the point. Yeah. It's not about how vicious the wolf is. It's how vicious the people are. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite. Um, you wrote a pretty good werewolf short story that I read. Yeah. You know, it was published in the Marriott County Messenger, yes. where all the greats are published. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the Corn Wolf, which is a reference to the idea of the uh, predatory dog being loose in the cornfield. Yes. To scare children out of getting lost. So, uh, without putting too too fine a point on it, uh, King in the mid '80s had a little bit of a drug and alcohol problem, mm-hmm. some personal problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does not remember directing the movie Maximum Overdrive. Probably best. Probably best. <laughs> Probably for the best, yeah. Uh, because you know that originally got an X rated for violence. It did. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I I rag on it. I remember watching it uh, not long after it was out on VHS. It wasn't long after it came out, yeah. and um, it. I just don't really remember much about it. It it was just kind of. There wasn't much there. Yeah. Go yeah. back and watch it. Yeah. And remember that uh, my man had a head full of toot when he was directing it. <laughs> you, you give him a little bit of give him a little yeah. bit of leeway, and he's having a lot of fun. You can tell. <laughs> okay, I can go there. Yeah. So, uh, but we're talking about Salem's Lot because it is one of his favorites, because we're – Doing a cataloging, you know, and Duke, I, I don't know if we've ever really explicitly said this, but we're doing a cataloging of the horror genre. Yes. And of genre literature. We're going to get on to some sci-fi soon. Yeah. Um, but we those wanna... lines, those lines between horror and sci-fi, uh, they blur. Very and... much. Very much, and and it's hard to be strictly horror without getting into some sci-fi and some fantasy. And uh, something that that I have noticed, something that I we kind of built Tennessee Macabre around. Neil Privet and I. Neil is my partner in that, and um, we wanted to build it around rock and roll. So mm-hmm. it's hard to catalog horror without discussing rock and roll. And I, I think we'll probably do some of that too. I think we'll have to. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Maximum Overdrive, it's got a killer soundtrack by AC. It does. Yeah. You know, I'm not even a big ACDC fan, but yeah. that's a killer soundtrack. That's a killer soundtrack. It is. Yeah. So, you know, and King, famously a big rock and roll fan. Yes. So, One of the things that I like most about Christine is every chapter begins with a a verse from a rock and roll, a rock and roll great song. Mm. Big Ramones fan, King. You know that? Yeah. 
something yeah. him and I have in common. Yeah. Cool. I bar none coolest band that's ever lived. So, <laughs> yes, indeed. The Ramones. Yeah. So uh, maybe they weren't smart enough to be posing, but you know, yeah. they take their lumps, but they keep going. You know? Yes, they do. So uh, let's get on to the story. Uh, I'll give you a summary here. Mm -hmm. And uh, it dawns on me we should probably at some point start doing, uh, what do you call it, spoiler alerts, right? Yeah. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. But I would hope, I would hope that everybody that's tuning into this podcast has has watched or read, preferably read, Salem's Lot. Absolutely. But we're going to just just in case you haven't. We're going to say spoiler alert. Yes, indeed. There you go. So if you haven't pause this, go read these 700 pages and come back. Come back and talk to us. Yeah. Yeah. So you got Ben Mears, who's a writer. Um, moderately successful. He's making a living off it. This is the first time uh, King uses a writer as his main character. Right. Which is going to be a major staple of his. He begins to write about the writer and write about creatives, musicians, things like that. Um, I think to great effect. He understands this world. So we've got Ben Mears, he's a writer, and he's traveling to Jerusalem's lot, Maine. Yes. 25 years after he lived there as a kid for a little while, Mm -hmm. he's trying to write his next novel. He becomes friends with a high school teacher, Matt Burt, uh, strikes up a romantic relationship with Susan Norton, a young college graduate. She's also an artist. She's a painter. Ben is trying to write a book about the Marston house where he had a bad experience as a child. He saw this guy hanging himself, a ghost, right? The Marston house is this empty, dilapidated house owned by a mobster from the 30s who killed his wife and hung himself, right? Mm -hmm. Well... He is going to rent the house. Only when he gets to town, it's already been rented. Right. Um, they're bought, actually. So, it's Straker and Barlow are the two guys who have bought this house. Mm-hmm. Their arrival coincides with the disappearance of a young boy. And the death of his older brother. And turns out it's Barlow. Barlow is a vampire, right? Right. Andy Count Dracula, old world, you know, uh, old world aristocracy of Bane, right? Striker is his human ghoul. Is yeah, uh, familiar. Yeah, he's familiar. So 
you've got this kid, Mark Petrie, or Petrie, mm-hmm. who uh, Danny tries to get to turn, right? Mm-hmm. But he is he's able to fend him off with a plastic cross. Yes. Mark is obsessed with Hollywood monsters and knows you're not supposed to invite vampires in, into your home, which helps him stay safe. It's worth mentioning, I think, that Mark is also an aspiring writer. Yes, yes, absolutely. Wants to be a horror writer one day, right? Mm-hmm. So, Mark is a great character. Yeah, I like the kid already. That scene where Danny comes to the window Mm -hmm. and tries to, well, glimmer his way in, glamour his way in, you know, hypnotize uh, Mark is Mm -hmm. terrifying. Yes, it is. Little boy vampire scratching at the window, terrifying. That that works quicker than X Lax. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. it's a it's a scary, scary. It it's one of the scariest moments in film history, and of course in book history. Oh yeah, uh, I would put it up against anything in the original Dracula. Oh Lord, yeah. Mm-hmm. So and don't get me wrong, I love Dracula. I have three copies of that book, three different yeah. uh, translations, but. But it's well, not, it's Dracula not, is a lot of things, but it's not particularly scary. It's not in your face like this. No. You have this, to know so much culture and backstory, you know? Yes. Yes. So, several days later, many of the townspeople are turned. Uh, Matt Burt sees someone turn. Or rather, here's it. Um, Matt, Ben, Susan, they're joined by Jimmy Cody, who is Matt's doctor, along with Mark and the local priest, Father Callahan. Put a pin in him. We're going to spend, I don't know, five, six hours talking about him. Um, (laughs) Then we get into some really crazy stuff. Susan gets captured by Barlow. Her and Mark are both creeping up to the house, the Marson house, to confront him. She's captured and taken down and fed to Barlow, who turns her into a vampire. Yes. Mark escapes. Yes. Father Callahan and Mark head over to Mark's parents' house. To explain the danger the family is in, because when the family go, when the intrepid vampire hunters go back, they are uh, mocked via letter, and they Mark's family is threatened directly. Mark's parents right. don't believe him until Barlow shows up. He slams Mark's parents' heads together, killing them. Takes the boy hostage. Callahan has a crisis of faith. Callahan doesn't do so well. Barlow makes him drink his blood. 
And then Callahan cannot re-enter his church. He's unclean. He leaves the lot. Yes. Jimmy dies falling into a good old-fashioned booby trap. It's a staircase turned into a punji pit. Mm-hmm. Ben and Mark eventually kill Barlow. But they don't kill all the vampires. No. They they leave and then the the novel's prologue and epilogue are about them in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Hiding out. Right? Right. So the epilogue has them return to the town and burn it down. Purification by fire. Purification by fire. So, and I'm taking a lot of liberties. This is a, my copy that I got from my local library. Mm -hmm. I would say the name, but they fired a good friend of mine, so I'm not going to give them a prop. (laughs) Uh, 653 pages. Yes. And 10 point font. I mean, it is a long one. Yes, it is. I did not, however, ever feel like it dragged. At no point does this book drag. It moves from the time you pick it up to the time you lay it down. Even the epilogue and the prologue move. Because the fact that it has an epilogue and a prologue tells you an awful lot about this story. Because the good guys don't win. They are surviving. It is almost post-apocalyptic in that, you know, somebody has dropped the vampire bomb on Salem's lot and these two guys just survive. So even the epilogue and the prologue move, I think. Um, An important point that I feel like, you know, you got to bring out um, is that they have to get out of town. And I, I guess it's what I'm trying to say is you've got, you've got a uh, logarithmic. Uh, no, that's not what, that's not the word I'm looking for. This thing spreads like a plague. Okay. Rather than just, just what you see in the traditional 1930s horror movie where Dracula has three brides this thing moves through the town like the black death and it, it blows up overnight and Salem's lot is infested with vampires. It's also, there's a lot about setting here. I'm from a small town. Okay. I know, uh, I know Mark. I, I was Mark. Okay. I know, uh, Crockett. I know, uh, a a teacher, you know, several teachers. So these are character types that I know and am familiar with. And that goes back to the whole in your face thing. This isn't a castle in Transylvania. This is not London. This is small town America. Well, something interesting to think about. Uh What does it mean to take it from Transylvania to a hometown? Because that's a big part of Dracula is the other invading, right? Yes, right. 
um, in that case, it's east coming to west. In this right. case, it is outside coming to inside. Small yeah. towns are very insular. Yes. They exist the way they do because they are so insular. Um, now, do you think that do you think that the othering here has to do with the city dwelling nature of Barlow and Stryker? I think it I think to some degree, yes. I think it also has to deal with the city dwelling nature of Hubie Marsden. Because Hubie Marsden is a for someone that doesn't have a single line in a six hundred, almost seven hundred page novel, Hubie Marsden is a huge character in this novel. Oh, yeah. And he is from Boston and goes into hiding in Salem's Lot. Um, then, of course, you've got you've got uh, Ben Mears is an outsider. He grew up. He was born in the town and spent some time there, but he moved away and he's come back. So he's treated as an outsider. And then I think you have to count Mark as an outsider, even though he's born and grown up there. His interests are horrible horror models fantasy mm -hmm. in a town that's very bread and potatoes. He doesn't fit in. Ooh. So the, the of, uh, something called a self-made freak. Yes. Um, yes. In sideshows, there were often the tattooed man, the tattooed mm -hmm. woman, right? Mm -hmm. They would be tattooed head to foot, face, hands, right. everything, right? Yeah. Um, they were a they were part of the freak show, uh, yes. which is not the preferred nomenclature now, but uh, they were quote unquote self made freaks, right? Right. So Mark is a self made outsider. Yes, he's Absolutely. not an outsider because he comes from elsewhere. He's an outsider because his interests are different. He is weird. You know, a little bit off. They right. describe him as being fleet of foot, kind of stoic, which mm -hmm. kids often are not, you know? Right, right. Ironically, one of the early on in the book, Mark is in a fight with mm -hmm. uh, the school bull bully and beats the snot out of him. Oh, yeah. Which is often not what you see from the outsider. He actually just tears this guy apart. Mm -hmm. Which is um, interesting. I think one of the things I wanted to get into is this idea of the outsider. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of use of homophobic slurs. Yes. Uh, as a warning, mm -hmm. if you're going to read this and you're sensitive to that, it comes up a lot. Yes. Uh, I think it's an othering. Yeah. Just a way to other, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. I grew up in the 90s, and I was, I was called quite a few, you know, because yeah. <laughs> um, so they're, the non-creative people uh, went right after my weight and sexuality. So, but there's that othering that Barlow and Stryker, I think, 
represent something that is really threatening to a small town, and that is money. Yes. Right? Right. What sets them apart other than their country of origin? They're rich. Their money. And then there is the fact that Mar uh, Barlow mm -hmm. is a European aristocrat. Yes. And is. that is totally foreign. We, we uh, in America, we flirt with it, uh, with King and Queen of England, but we really don't have any real experience of an aristocracy, of a landed aristocracy in the European tradition. We have very rich people here that we treat as aristocrats, but we don't have an experience with landed aristocracy, which is what Barlow is. So he's not only rich, he's, he is a nobleman. Yeah. Uh, which is very much in the tradition of Dracula. Yes. Yes. Boy, boy. You know, you gotta give the devil his due. Dracula is the quintessential vampire story. You know, of course, of course. And we're gonna have to talk about it because I think we've thrown shade at it every episode so far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which tells you a lot that you have to keep coming back to it. So yeah, we do have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, Dracula and Frankenstein. Uh, were the novels that launched a thousand novels. Yeah. God, don't get me started on Frankenstein. Yeah. It's just, I get it. Yeah. I get it. The monster's not the monster. The doctor's the monster. The monster's the creature. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so boring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so boring. Yeah. So. I will say, I will say this. Of all the various iterations of Frankenstein and Dr. Frankenstein, uh, other than Rocky Horror Picture Show and Young Frankenstein, which are, of course, my two favorites, um, the best is the Hammer, the 1958 Frankenstein, with Peter Cushing as Dr. Frankenstein. That is probably my favorite serious Frankenstein movie. Um, but yeah, I see what you're saying. And the novel does not read very well. It's not a fun novel to read. Okay, can you hear me? I accidentally muted, muted my mic. I'm so sorry. Oh, okay. So I'm sitting here. I see your lips moving, but I'm not hearing anything. <laughs> okay. Um, so, but let's get back to, to the, to the novel at hand here. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's interesting too, and a lot of folks don't know this. I didn't realize this till you pointed out to me that Stephen King actually wrote a short story called Jerusalem's Lot. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to bring this out because Jerusalem's lot has a lot of the same so a lot of the same plot points that Salem's lot has. Give us a sizzle that one for us. Okay, you've got you've got an evil house 
Mm-hmm. Um, the protagonist, and I can't remember the protagonist's name right now, but the protagonist goes down into the basement and he sees the ghost of a corpse hanging in the basement. Um, then there's some very, um, very Lovecraftian elements to this short story. And I would argue that there's some Lovecraftian elements to Salem's Lot as well. But, you know, there was actually an ancestor that um, started a town and created a church, but it was a cult and they're sacrificing to some being out there. And that is Salem's Lot, uh, Jerusalem's Lot, right? And uh, so you have you have sort of those elements of of um, families being tied to one place, the place being evil, the house being evil, the families having evil running through them. So you see a lot of that. It's almost like he wrote Jerusalem's lot and then said, man, those were some really good ideas. Let me come back and elaborate it and put it in a modern setting. Yeah, Um, it was written afterwards. He also wrote a sequel to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a short story. Yep. I've never read it, but yeah. Uh, it's called One for the Road. It is uh-huh. brutal. It's uh, what? It is brutal. Okay. It's about a guy whose car breaks down and he walks to the nearest bar. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is it's broken down in Salem's lot. Oh. Oh. Okay. And we're talking about between... The end of the novel and the beginning of the epilogue. Okay. So, a bunch of leaderless vampires. Oh. So, it, it was in Graveyard <laughs> Shift, which was the same place that Jerusalem's Lot was originally published. Okay. Okay. But, it's a, it's a good one. Yeah. Yep. yep. It's really worth a, worth a read. You know? Yes, it is. Yeah. So, um, what do you think about the idea of the Gothic here? Oh, man. It is. You know, okay. You know that the, the, the painting American Gothic? Mm-hmm. To me, this is a literary version of that. I would because say so. You, you see... You see small town America, but you see it from in the worst possible light with uh, some really bad things happening. Okay. But it's not, and I'm not talking about the vampires. Okay. There's bad stuff going on. I mean, there's a quote I put in here. Matt Burke is referring to the events at Marston House and the rumors about them. And he says, it's more than, than that. I think it is a, perhaps due to a geographical freak. And Ben answers, it stands on the hill overlooking the village like, oh, like some kind of dark idol. Matt Burke says, the Marston House has looked down on all of us for almost 50 years at all of our little peccadilloes and sins and lies like an idol. There's, a little, good, there's little good in sedentary small towns mostly indifference, spiced with an occasional vapid evil, or worse, a conscious one. I believe Thomas Wolfe wrote about seven pounds of literature on that. So, so we're talking about small town evil. Yes. Right? We're talking about 
little e evil. Yes. Adultery. Yep. Child mm-hmm. abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, greed. Greed. Yeah. Uh, they talk about the worst that ever really happens there is someone hits their wife, someone drives home drunk, blah, blah, blah. These are things that I, and then you've got big evil, like mm-hmm. the devil, Martin, yeah. Barlow, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's like the little e evil predicates itself. And therefore, we allow the big E evil in. Exactly. So, Callahan, right? Uh-huh. He laments that there's not more to fight. Right. But then when Callahan, still- Callahan himself has a closet full of demons that he could fight. Absolutely. He could get counseling for uh, who's the lady who punches her infant? Yeah, I don't remember. I don't upsetting. Uh, let's see, Sandy McDougal. Yeah. Callahan obviously has a drinking problem. Yeah, I mean, he's a. Uh, you know, here's to him. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he certainly doesn't have a drinking solution. Mm-mm. Mm. But my big question is like, isn't that sort of the problem with these stories so often? Mm-hmm. You, and the problem with modern horror. I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you forget until King shoves your nose into it, you little evils. Right. You know, you get, you get inured to those evils. Yeah. And, and you're, you're like the priest. You're looking for a bigger evil, which is why you picked up the book in the first place. Yeah. Um, he has plenty. He could fight. Yeah. But he doesn't want to because it's not flashy. Right. Right. Exactly. Does that make him a fallen priest? I don't. I here's here's where it gets interesting. Mm-hmm. Callahan is a human priest with all the the flaws and foibles of any human being. Mm-hmm. You could make the you could make the argument that Sandy McDougal is yes, she's a child abuser and that's horrible. Sandy McDougal is what a 16, 17 year old girl with a baby? 17, yeah. Yeah, so Stop she's got like, she's got a lot of problems that she's dealing with on her own. Not that that excuses what she's done. With a vaguely abusive husband. Vaguely abusive husband, yeah. Definitely um, emotionally abusive. Yeah, you can you can make the argument that Crockett's just trying to make a living. Mm-hmm. That is the nature of small e evil. It's very easy to use and write off. Oh yeah, I mean, 
This is the kind of uh, Kantian argument, though. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Like, is it always bad to lie? That's yeah. the question. Yeah. You think it's always bad to lie? Oh, no, no, no. I was just I was just agreeing that that's the question. Oh, no. Oh. I was like, oh, okay, because now we've got no, 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 no. Obviously, you know, I know of nobody, no human being that tells the truth, one hundred percent the truth, one hundred percent of the time. Yeah, there are times that we all lie to protect people's feelings, and let's just get perfectly blunt. There are times that we all lie to save our butts. Of course, you got Uh, to. You got to. Uh, that is not the Sunday school answer, but that is the human answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there's always the question, like, when we're looking at this kind of thing, you know, and I think this all started with the Gothic, right? Yeah. yeah. Big evil versus little evil. Yes. Well, big G Gothic versus little G Gothic, right? Yes. 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 Absolutely. Because I've said that my definition of gothic or horror is inversion, Mm -hmm. isolation, Mm -hmm. and the uncanny, right? Yes. So this satisfies two of them very easily. Yes. You're isolated Mm -hmm. because you're out in the middle of the country. The uncanny is the vampire. Right. So your inversion, however, is the idea of the townspeople being wholesome. Yes. But they're really not. So much of American literature is predicated on that idea that uh, small towns are wholesome. Yes. So I think that the lengthy sections in this book where he just describes it sound and what they're doing mm-hmm. serve that purpose. Absolutely. And that evil in the town invites the vampire. The Absolutely. little evil invites the big E. Yes. You know? Yeah, there's there's no question in my mind about that. And you look at Hubie Marston. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Hebe Marsden, like I, like I said a few minutes ago, Hebe Marsden is this tremendous character in this book that doesn't have a single solitary line, not but one. not one line. But he's important, and he's a mm-hmm. thread that runs all the way through it. Hebe Marsden is a hitman for the mob in Boston, mm-hmm. and evidently is quite good at his job. But eviscerates a child. And the mob steps in and saves him, but they want him, they want him out of the way. They don't want him associated with them anymore, but they want him quiet. Mm -hmm. So they basically pinch him off and send him to Salem's lot. And we don't know exactly, we don't get a lot of detail, but there is a line 
where uh, uh, let's see, I'm trying to find it where uh, Stryker is securing Mark to Bane, and he tells him, he says, "I'm trying. I've reported this line down here someplace. I'm trying to look for because it it's really good." Uh, let's see. Well, I cannot find it. I know I wrote it down. You are uh, made fast to the very beam, my master's friend and sponsor in this country. Yes, that's so, it. Young that's master, it. you flattered? Yeah, exactly. And that implies that Marsden summoned the vampires. And there are hints that they're... they're it's, they never come out and say it, but there are hints that there is some sort of a ceremony and that Marsden maybe sacrifices children to bring this about. Of course, we know they, they, they do more than hint that Marsden kills children. Oh, yeah. No, we know but that. We know that he kills children, but there is some hint that it is a sacrifice to bring Stryker and, and, and Bri uh Marla. Um, I was trying to think the, the German name is Breiker. Yeah. So Stryker, Stryker and Breiker loosely translate as Stryker and Breiker. Hmm. That's and, that's appropriate. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's very, very appropriate. appropriate. Very appropriate. Uh, do you notice a little Lovecraft nod here? Mm-hmm. They find the Necronomicon at the Marston house. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. It's there. Yeah, he's everywhere. Yes. He is everywhere. He is everywhere. Yeah. So, well, there's a lot more to talk about. Yes. But we're coming up on our time. Yes. You want to continue this next, uh, next two weeks? Let's do it. All right. So what do you got to promote, dude? Well, uh, I want to remind everybody to tune in to Tennessee Macaw. Uh, we will, I don't know what we're showing this week yet. We haven't got it up, but uh, you can find us Saturday night at 10 Central Time, 11 Eastern on ITV Chattanooga and on Other Worlds TV. And you can join us I'm just, midnight on Other Worlds TV, midnight Eastern. 10 uh, Central, 11 Eastern on Stream TV, ECN, Channel 01. So you can catch us three different places on Saturday night. So please join us. All right. So Tennessee Macabre. Tennessee Macabre. Yeah. We'll be showing uh, some great B horror movies. Yeah. What's your favorite B movie? Mmm. I love White Zombie with Bella Lugosi. That's a favorite. I don't think that's a B movie though. I, I don't. I mean, it was so well done. <laughs> like, it was so well done, but it was an independent movie produced by two brothers. Um, it never had the press and backing that Dracula did. Mm -hmm. As influential as Bella Lugosi's Dracula was, I think White Zombie has been more influential on the horror industry since. 
because they use a lot of, you know, where they focus the white lights on Bela Lugosi's eyes to, to do the hypnotism. You still see that in horror movies today. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of my favorites. Uh, I like the monster of Pedras Blancas, which is a rubber suit monster show that sort of capitalized on the popularity of the creature of Black Lagoon. And I think script-wise and acting-wise, I think it was a better move than the creature of the Black Lagoon. Now, special effects were on the cheesy side, but uh, it was a good movie. Let's see if we can rotate this around so you can see my new tattoo. Oh, wow. That is creature. 3D. I love it. Yeah. So my answer is obvious. You know, yeah. Yep. From the Black Lagoon all Preacher day. Black Lagoon, yeah. Yeah. So. But there's so many to choose from. And you know, I even like we need to spend some we need to have a an Ed Wood uh an Ed Wood show. I love Ed Wood. Bride of the Monster. Lord, yeah. I love Bride of the Monster. Playing Nine from Outer Space is a great movie, too. But yeah. um, I like that Plan Nine is part of a trilogy, and no one ever talks about the rest of the trilogy. Because yeah, nobody ever talks about the rest of it. Yeah. But Plan Nine is bad, but in comparison. <laughs> in comparison. In comparison. It, uh, it, was- it is a masterpiece. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. All right. So I've been Blake. I am, uh, of course, always promoting Pulp Factory Easing. Yes. And Blood Oaks. We've got a new album coming out. Oh, I cannot wait. North George Death Cult. Yep. Oh. So, which is. Uh, well, and. I was um, downloading some of your music today, some of uh, Blood Oaks music today. Yeah. I'm in the process of putting together an online radio station that specializes in psychobilly, horror punk, uh, that sort of music. And uh, I love you guys' stuff. Uh, downloaded uh, downloaded some of it today. and I can't wait on the new album. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we've got that, uh, Car Crash Kid, The Tomb Tones, Sarah and the Safe Word. They all have got new albums out. Yep. Go check them out. Yes. Uh, Brother and Sister Bands. Yep. All right. Well, I think we're going to call it for the day. And uh, in two weeks, we'll see you back to talk more about the movie and more about Stephen King in general. That sounds like a plan. I cannot wait. All right, bro. Have a good one, my friend.